I remember standing on the stage or the um, the set, uh, looking at the auto cue and thinking, this is amazing. I can't believe people get to do this for a living. Mm. And then a couple of weeks after that, I got a call from the editor at the time, Dan Clark, and he said, oh, look, I need to kind of talk to my bosses and see whether we can um, have you on, see whether we want to we want to have you on. And he's like, I'll get back to you at the end of the week. And this was like a Monday. He got back to me that evening and was like, we would love to have you. Dope. Yeah. That is super dope. Okay, so Aisha, how are you? I'm good, love. Well? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Good. Navigating this thing called life. Yeah, you I know. know. We do. Me too. Bit of work. Just about. You're my first guest on this podcast. Ah, I'm so excited. You are my number I'm one so guest. I'm so excited. I better yeah. be good. Um, I'm going to start off with by asking you what for you is the hardest thing about being a journalist? Jeez, you're going right in. Straight Not even in. a softball, no, no, lovely no, no. lad. Ah, no. Okay, so the hardest thing about being a journalist, I think, is just sometimes it can feel absolutely relentless. It's just a barrage. And usually, um, you know, it's a lot of really, really sad, horrific news. And sometimes you feel like you can't even come up for air. Um, at this time of recording, we've had the Child Q story, mm -hmm. which as a black woman um, just resonates even more and is so horrific of a girl who was strip searched at her school um, by police officers and they did not find any weed on her, but she smelt of weed. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things that you hear these types of stories and they just make you cry mm -hmm. and weep and just think, my gosh, this is just awful. And so sometimes it can feel absolutely relentless. You uh, you just feel exhausted, um, quite frankly. It's really difficult being journalists, especially in news as well, because and um, we often say in our, in our newsroom at Channel 4 News, whereby sometimes some of the most foul, horrific and grim stories are the stories that actually as journalists you kind of want to be covering. Mm. And there's a real awkward dichotomy of you call these things good stories when really they're really not good stories and people in the industry understand what you mean. Yeah. But if people heard you talking about, for example, the child Q thing as a good story, they'd mm. be like, what are you talking about? But as a journalist, these are the big things that we would rather be covering, right? It's stories that shock you, stories that are just really, really vivid that you want to be doing as mm. a journalist. You don't kind of come into journalism and think I'm just going to do the lovely soft fluffy stories that I just there's really a cat in a tree me. I want to report there's on a that one there's a cat in a tree oh, I love it or there's like a, a big PR thing or you know um, red carpet and glitz and glamour where mm. you're going to get absolutely nothing out of some celebrities some celebrities are lovely some of them have nothing to say mm -hmm. um, and you don't go into journalism for that you go into journalism to speak truth to power you go in to try and make a difference that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it and give a voice to the voiceless and and all of that sort of stuff. And so for me, that's one of the most important things. And that's why sometimes the harder stories, you absolutely are putting up your hand and, and banging down doors saying, I have to cover this. Mm -hmm. This is something that we have to cover. Um, so yeah, it's it can be really, really tough and really, really challenging. 
Um, it's so funny. I was speaking to my godmother recently and um, talking about the big stories and, and talking about Ukraine. And I was saying, you know, how I've been doing a lot of the story. And, and then she kind of said, oh, what would it be? be like if you went out there she kind of said oh, I don't want you to go out there and I was like actually the instinct in me as a journalist is to I actually want to be there I want to be there I want to be telling people's stories and it's a massive story and I want to be there and for her she just does not get it she's just like it. you are not going <laughs> you are not going anywhere you park your butt right there and you stay where you are and so it's really difficult when people who aren't in the industry don't get that kind of drive don't and get it. to do it but um, it's instilled in me. I always want to run towards the danger. No, no, that, that's that's what we're journalists. You know, the story's over there. We want to yeah. go where the story is. So I get it as well. Um, let's go back, Aisha. Let's go back to now when you, when did you first realise that journalism and writing was the thing you wanted to do? Because it's not often the most attractive of industries to, to, to want to enter when you're young. For, for boys, it's normally something to do with music or sport. Mm. Um I, I wanted to write, but what for you as a young girl was it that made you decide, if indeed when you were young, mm. that journalism was the was industry you wanted to, wanted to enter? So I think I was about 15 and media was my favourite subject at school. I had a wonderful media teacher called Mr McHale mm. and we went on a school trip to the Guardian newspaper and the whole day we just had to have a front page of a newspaper and we got to choose the stories. We saw wires coming in um, and this is when... Uh, there's such a thing called, it used to be called BBC Choice. Now it's BBC Three. That's how old I am. I'm so old. I'm going to cry. Nothing at all. No, no, no. <laughs> but, none of that. None of that. Um, yeah, we had to pick what the stories would be. Mm -hmm. And I sat there with my partner um, and we were the first to finish because I'm so competitive. We we're the first to finish the front page. And I thought in that moment, I can't believe people get paid to do this. This is amazing. I've had the best day. I absolutely love it. Um, and I had no idea how to become a journalist. So I just knew I wanted to be one. And I remember just after that, kind of speaking to my media teacher, going to the library and looking at the careers kind of things. It said how to be a journalist and it, they absolutely had no clue. But it was like being good at English, being mm -hmm. good at writing. And from there, I just kind of navigated my way into uh, getting into entry level stuff and figuring out stuff because I just knew at that moment that that's what I wanted to do. I had no idea how to get there at all, but I knew that that was my destination. And then what was your route from school to college? Did you do the, the, the traditional route of university then? Or, or, or did, you, did you get writing jobs mm. early that kind of really made you leapfrog into mainstream media? So I was 15, mm. newspaper. And I kind of couldn't work out like how I was going to do it or anything like that. Um, but I stayed kind of doing my studies and was at uni and that sort of stuff. But I also like worked in retail. So I worked at Marks and Spencer's. Um, and then my dad fell ill, actually. And I had to kind of drop out of uni for a while mm -hmm. and then go and work in a food packing factory as okay. a receptionist. Wow. And I remember... Uh, there were people outside, like there would be people outside kind of coming in for jobs and stuff. And I would think, or they would call up and try and get a job because it was like an immigrant, recent migrants thing, you know, one of those kind of uh, roles. And I was thinking, gosh, this is a really good newspaper story. Like I would absolutely love to do it. And I'm sat here as a receptionist, mm. bored out of my mind. Um, and I wasn't able to actually tell that story, but I was able to... Um, kind of do like loads of volunteering stuff like hospital radio on the side and all of that sort of stuff. 
But I always had that thing where I had to sustain myself mm -hmm. and help my family out um, as well as following my passion. And it was always really difficult. And it wasn't until I got um, an opportunity at BBC, like the production trainee scheme, and I just applied and applied and applied and eventually got it. But it, it's just been such a tough, tough journey and navigating it's been really difficult. And, and then when you got that opportunity at the BBC, what were your initial thoughts being a, a young woman entering the BBC machine, if you like? Mm. And what was it like navigating the early parts of your progression through th that corporation? Yeah, so the production trainee scheme, I think there were like 4,000 people that applied and then 12 of us got it. Okay. Um, I think every time I tell this story, like I add thousands more on just to sound really Yeah, impressive. it sounds better. It's cool. It it's sounds fine, better, yeah. but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 4,012. <laughs> like, like, it sounds good. Was it like 20 really, in reality? It, yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> no, I'm sure, joking, I'm pretty I'm joking. sure it's a lot. I'm joking. Pretty sure, pretty sure it's a lot. So there were 12 of us and we had a month's worth of training and I was the only black woman um, in that intake. And there was another uh, girl who was Asian from Bradford, who I'm still really close friends with, um, called Parveen, who I absolutely love. Um, but yeah, we kind of banded together and were navigating this big, crazy machine that at times just really didn't make any sense. We're both from really working class backgrounds. And when you're from a working class background and you're going into some of these spaces, it's really difficult to work out the codes and what mm -hmm. people are doing and people are using all these different like language for TV and you're like, what the hell does that mean? Whereas someone who has a parent in that industry would absolutely clock on mm -hmm. what that would mean. But I felt like I was sitting there a lot of the times not knowing what I was doing. And is that what you found? That the other people yeah. that were there, they kind of had some kind of a understanding or preparation for what they were entering, whereas you and your friend you were the two that were like, this is completely a new world to us. It was completely like fish out of water. Mm. We were just like trying to figure out stuff before you actually got to do mm. stuff. So even if you had like great, fantastic ideas, you were trying to figure out a way to put those ideas in a way that people would understand and that they would kind of get it. Um, so you felt like you had an extra hurdle. So it was really quite difficult to navigate. And I kind of wish I had... I had, I've, I've got some great mentors who've helped me on my way, but in that initial stage, I wish, sorry, I had someone there to kind of say, like, this is what you do mm. and this is how it's kind of worked out. Because I didn't have that. And then what was your first big break at the BBC? First big break, let me just think. Funny, I was on the production trainee scheme and then actually left um, straight after to work at Sky and I was an interviews producer mm -hmm. so I uh, guest booked and got loads of kind of people and were calling up saying would you appear on Sky mm. News? No. Yes. <laughs> oh please someone help me. Um, so I did that for a little while and then I got a random phone call um, at my desk when I was at Sky and they said oh we've kind of seen you on LinkedIn and we wondered if you would like to present because all in my career up to that point I had been a um, researcher or a producer and they were like, would you like to present? And I thought, yeah, hell yeah. But like, how is this even going to be possible? And they said, we're going to do screen tests for this show and we'd like you to come and do it. Mm. Um, and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke, but I interrogated it a little, little bit more. And then she said, oh, it's in Manchester. It's for a children's based news program. I was like, what news round? She's like, I can't possibly, <laughs> I can't possibly reveal. You knew what it was. The, eh? um, <laughs> I can't possibly reveal anything about where it is or whatever. So yeah, I was like, okay, it's news round. Um, and then we kind of like worked out the details and I went up and uh, did the screen test. And I remember standing on the stage or the, um, the set 
looking at the auto cue and thinking, this is amazing. I can't believe, again, it's like when I was 15. Like, I can't believe people get to do this for a living. Mm -hmm. And I stood there and I read out the script and I did all these ad libs because they were like kids comments coming in. I was like, oh, that's funny. Oh, that's not funny. Whatever. And I did all of that. And I thought this was amazing. And then a couple of weeks after that, I got a call from the editor at the time, Dan Clark, saying, um, like, let's meet up. And then we kind of chatted about the show. And I remember it was that day. Um, it, it was like some place in Houston that we met up and we had this this chat. And he said, oh, look, I need to kind of talk to my bosses and see whether we can um, have you on, see whether we want to we want to have you on. And he's like, I'll get back to you at the end of the week. And this was like a Monday. He got back to me that evening and was like, we would love to have you. Dope. Yeah. That is super dope. It was amazing. And do you think, we'll get to Channel 4 News in a little bit, but do you mm. think that you were a natural, this was the one thing that you were naturally good at, or has it always been something you've had to work at? And you've been talented, but you've never felt like you're a natural when it comes to reporting on screen. You know, it's been quite difficult. I'm actually, even though I come across as really gregarious and open, I'm actually quite a shy person. I'm quite introverted. And so it's something that I've had to learn to do. I've had to learn to be open and have people want to come to me to tell their stories because I realise that that's such an important part of what I do. And without that, I'm nothing really. And so it's something that I've learned and you just, it's kind of like air miles. You just get better and better and better at it. Um, but it's something that I do kind of think about day in, day out of like, how do I kind of hone this skill and, and progress? Because it's not something that I'm naturally, naturally quite good at. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree, but I'll, I'll, I'll take your answer there. Um, so many people work in television now, presenting or whatever it may be in TV, started doing kids TV. Mm. What is it about kids television that gives you the kind of nuts and bolts and groundings that, propels you into into other levels of, of presenting and broadcasting? Kids are brutally honest, man. They will absolutely tell you when you are doing it right or when you're doing it wrong. They do not care about feelings or whatever. You know, I, I once did a documentary about rhino poaching in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and we had to go and do kind of focus groups before we went. And I remember going into this school and saying, we're gonna do this documentary about rhino poaching. And they were like, what poached eggs? because they had no they had no clue and then That's i was good. like i've kind of worked on this whole script or this thing and i haven't even taken into account what kids where mm -hmm. they're at and mm -hmm. where their levels at and i was like okay so i'm going to have to make sure that i do that and because you are constantly thinking about your audience and you're constantly thinking i've got to explain and they've got to get this that's why you're good because you're constantly thinking about all of those sorts of things and i always think um, the producers, the researchers, everyone that works at Newsround are some of the most brilliant journalists you will ever meet. Because if you're writing for, uh, if you're writing for publications where people kind of know and they're passionate about, technically that's quite easy. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mm -hmm. gonna get the they're gonna get the jargon, they're gonna get the in jokes, all that sort of stuff. If you are writing for a child who only thinks that poaching is about poached eggs, mm -hmm. you got some kind of skill. And so that's why I think you are able to um, be successful in that way. And you're able to explain things in a way that others aren't. And I take that into every single thing that I do. Mm. 
I always make sure that people understand and you're bringing people up to where you are. Because I always think with news, we assume so much. We assume that people um, like even know the different parts, like Ukraine, for example, that's going on at the moment. We assume that people know that it's like from the West, Lviv to Kiev is like an 11, 12 hour drive on a good day. Mm-hmm. Like that's how massive this country mm-hmm. is. And I think sometimes we forget to explain the basic things because we're explaining all the bits on top and you can never forget the basics because you don't know where people are at. Um, Krishnan, um, obviously, uh, who we work with at Channel 4 News, mm. his foundation was at Newsround as well, wasn't yes. it? And I've heard him say years, which was years ago in an interview, that working there gave him the kind of grounding of how to be a broadcaster. And people think, oh, it's, it's kids' TV, it's easy. Mm. I agree. Talking and broadcasting to children is actually harder yeah. because you have to think twice as hard as you said about what you're saying and are they taking it in and not assuming knowledge. So I, I totally agree with that as well. Um, why is it important that journalists who are who are women and are black are working for national outlets like Channel 4 News? You've, you've, you know, you've been with us now, is it six years, five years? Bit you're, you're putting that up. I've only been there for like three years. Is it three years? It's three years. It pr- yeah, it's because the pandemic makes it feel like it's so long. So hang on, did you join just before the pandemic then? Yeah, in 2019. Shame. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that makes it even more so then because in that three years, you made such an impact. I thought you were even longer than that. No. But as someone who is a black woman and dark skin, mm. why is it important that, that dark skin black women are, are able to have opportunities to work and write for programs like Channel 4 News? Because we need to be represented. We need to be there. We need to be in the room when all of these big conversations are going on. I think for the longest time you have, and it's it's really difficult because in a lot of newsrooms all around the UK, you still have um, a, a group of people that are more influential and that are, are kind of making, calling all the shots. But you need to have a diverse range of people um, reporting the news. I remember looking back at like this um, this report back in the eighties, and they were talking about like a it was it was some sort of riot or something. Um, I can't remember exactly where it was, but they were basically using language to describe the black community that was really derogatory. And I was like, you know what? If I was there, I wouldn't have said that. Like, I wouldn't have said the looting and the raging and all that sort of stuff. I was like, but if someone was on the ground looking, would they say that? Mm -hmm. Are you kind of putting all your stereotypes on other people? Mm -hmm. That's really unfair. And that's not reporting. And that's that's just crap. And it shouldn't be the case at all like we should make sure that we're there we understand certain communities we understand certain things and we have to be there and as a and as a dark-skinned uh girl I um I will never forget there was a little girl I did a um a talk at a library I think it was Peckham Library and um a little girl who I did some filming with for Newsround like I took her to uh the Royal royal ballet i think and we did some filming and then a year later she came to the library Mm. for this talk that i was doing and she said every time that you're on aisha i make sure i watch and i think that i can be like you when i grow up and it just makes me cry thinking about it because for little girls that are watching and little girls that are watching the telly um you know i didn't really have many Mm -hmm. role models growing up and so for me to be a role model for others is amazing. Of course, I had like Maurice Stewart, Shining White, Gillian Joseph, and many more. But um, 
you know, it's really important for me to be that role model for other young girls, young dark skinned girls growing up so that they can see, you know what, I can do it as well. To your point earlier on about the need to having more representation of black people in the media, telling stories that often are about black people. Where do you stand on on the idea, though, then that some black people that work in the media feel like they don't only want to be reporting on mm. black stories? And I'm doing that in inverted commas for those that are listening to this. Because some would say, actually, I would rather a black reporter is talking about something to do with black communities because they understand the story more so. But then the counter is then, okay, then things like Ukraine. Mm. Well, then, okay, you can't have it both You can't, can't have it both ways. Either we put you on black stories so that you can yeah. tell the stories authentically and correctly. But then when it comes to white stories or more mainstream stories, well, then we'll put a white person on that. Mm. It's so difficult. And it's something that I personally wrestle with a lot because sometimes I want to make sure that whenever there are stories about the black community that they're done authentically mm -hmm. and that they're done right and that the right language is used, the right people are spoken to. And, and so there's that tussle, but also at the same time, I'm British. Mm -hmm. I can do stories about- um, Brexit. About Brexit and about- Election. COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, I was um, one of the first reporters in our newsroom to do the COVID story. And I remember standing outside Heathrow uh, saying that, uh, planes were still coming in from Wuhan mm -hmm. and why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I remember that. I, I remember just being like, wait, why haven't these planes been stopped? <laughs> and I don't have to be, you know, I could be any colour to mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. Like, why? I'm a journalist at the end of the day. So it's it's something that I, I grapple with constantly. Um, but I do feel like just because you are black doesn't mean that you don't, you shouldn't be able to do like stories that affect the rest of the um the uk because essentially i'm british as well so i can do that of course i started by asking you what is the worst thing about being a journalist what's mm. the best thing about being a journalist jeez oh that's really difficult i think the best thing about being a journalist is being able to tell stories that mean something to people and to make a difference and to make a change i think i've done so many stories over my life but one of the stories that really um always stays with me is um, a black pregnancy story of, um, you know, in this country, you're four times more likely to die in childbirth um, if you are black than if you are any other ethnic minority. And I think all of the stories that I've done on that mean something to me. They mean something to the women that I've spoken to, to the health um, professionals that are trying to make a difference and trying to make a change and any new development, I'm on that story because I ultimately feel like that's going to make a difference. And so for me, it's like being able to make a difference is really, really important to me. And that's why I became a journalist in the first place. I was going to ask actually what was the most poignant story you've ever covered, but I'm assuming that is... I just combined the two for you. you, did, you just did, you to did. Make I it like easy. that, I like no, that. No, but I think... Uh, but I have another story. Probably hmm. uh, Barbados becoming a republic. So I went in November and not, and it's not just cause I got to like see Rihanna, like. <laughs> oh no, we just, we just parked that for a second. We just parked that for a second. I didn't get to ask her a question, but you know, I was, I was close. So I was like, Rihanna. <laughs> anyway, um, I think for me, that's where um, a lot of my family are from. Mm -hmm. um, it's a story that is, you know, this kind of, them wanting to kind of take on an identity that's so different from their past and breaking away. Um, and I remember standing there thinking, gosh, this is a real moment. This is, and I'm privileged to be standing here in 28, 
uh, degrees Celsius heat <laughs> when it was November here. And I, it was I remember watching you thinking, man. And then, I came, and then I came back in the newsroom and everyone was like, how was your holiday? I was like, I was working so hard. You would not believe. See, that's important. Just to pause there for a second. That's really important that people think that, because when I go on these trips, these sporting tournaments, mm. people think you're on a jolly. People think that you're just like traveling first class around these countries. And there's an element of that, don't get me wrong. But they're long days. The time difference, depending on where you are in the world, means you might have to work a bit longer or mm. later or whatever it may be. Just to, just explain on that, yeah. that actually it's not just you in Barbados on the beach sunning <laughs> it up. It actually is a lot of work involved. Carrying kids. It, was it wasn't. It wasn't. Help me out here. Help it me wasn't. out here. Come on. No. And, and first class, you lucky, man. No, no, no. I, so, didn't sorry. Sorry. I didn't get that. But um, you work so much harder because you're out. And like in Barbados, you're, it was a four hour time difference, I think. So you're working four hours ahead. Um, on the day when um, Barbados became a republic, I worked until two in the morning, Barbados time. And then I had to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, Barbados time to get the edit ready to then kind of do things. When you're on a foreign trip, you work so much harder. And I think it's because you're given that opportunity mm -hmm. to go out and do this big, amazing mm -hmm. story. And all of these resources from your newsroom are going into it. And you don't want to you don't want to mess it up. No. So you put, I know for myself and probably for you as well, you just put that extra pressure 100%. on yourself to do uh, the most amazing job that you can. And I think even in Barbados, I think I was working like seven, eight days in a row. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was, I, I did the US election um, in 2020 and I, I must've worked 11 days in a row. And I traveled from, uh, I can't remember. I think we got into Texas. I can't even remember. No, we got into LA. Then I went to San Fran. Mm. Then I crisscrossed over to Miami. Like we were traveling like crazy and then doing all these insane stories. That's that the hardest bit. Like, it's, it's the traveling that's the hardest bit. Oh, in, especially so in big exhausting. countries. Yeah, it's in big, lot. massive countries, you're just traveling around. And so it can get, it's really, really intense. And obviously you miss your friends and family at home as well. And they all, and also, because <laughs> I was calling, I I think for the election, I went in November. I got engaged in the September. So I was like, bye fiance, <laughs> see you later. And, um, and he, he literally thought it was a jolly as well because he's not in journalism. So mm. he's just like, oh yeah, you're having right the best you. of times in, <laughs> in Miami sunning yourself. And I was like, I'm really if tired I'm actually. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, I want this podcast Asia, to be something that people listen to and are inspired to want to get into journalism and the media in general. I often talk about people using what they're told is a negative into a positive. So whether it's you're a woman, you can't do that. You're black, you can't do that. You're disabled, you can't do that. I'm very big on spinning those things and using that as an advantage. What are some of the great things about being a woman and being a dark skinned black woman that actually work for you in this industry? Yeah, I think going to spaces where journalists aren't necessarily usually welcome, mm -hmm. I'm able to kind of use my presence to turn things around a little bit. I went into a playground once and we had, um, you know, going into a playground with a camera is a really difficult thing, mm -hmm. actually. It was for COVID and uh, we were talking about COVID vaccines for five to 11 year olds. And I went in with a camera and sometimes people think that you're filming their kids and it can get a little bit fraught. And I remember going in and there was a woman that kind of said under her breath, I can't believe they're coming in here, uh, taking photos of kids. Blah, blah, blah. And you know what? I went up to her separately without the camera and I said, hi, I'm from Channel 4 News. This is what we're doing today. Um, I, you don't have to speak to me at all, but I just wanted you to know 
what I'm about and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And she was so embarrassed that mm -hmm. she didn't realize like what was going on. And she said, oh, I really appreciate you just coming up to me and saying that. And I think as like, I want to make sure that this, that journalism is accessible as possible and that people know what we're doing and they have some sort of inkling as to what's going on. Mm. Um, Cause I think sometimes we can appear really standoffish. And I think with my appearance and the way I'll go up to people, I'm able to kind of do that and change that. Mm -hmm. Just on, you were saying um, about kind of being disabled and being black and how you use things, um, these things to fuel you. I remember once um, I was working, um, I'm not gonna say where I was working, but I was told, um, I was asked if English was my first language. Yikes. And uh, I was about to present something. And so, you know, this person, she was trying to damage my confidence. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, actually, I'm gonna use that to my advantage. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna make sure that I absolutely smash every single thing I do out of the park, just to prove to you, you had no right to say that to me. Mm -hmm. You have no right to assume that because I am black, I am not mm -hmm. born and bred in this country. You know, there's something wrong, something wrong with you, to be perfectly honest. And I think that fuels me to have the career that I'm going to have, because I'm gonna make sure that I am doing the best of my ability despite people like that and they're few and far between that's like the only incident that i can think of mm -hmm. in my um time as a journalist that i was really like whatever um and that's what i use as my fuel to kind of continue and go on because regardless of whether you think or you know whether you think i should be a journalist or not or whether you think english is my first language mm -hmm. or not like it's got nothing to do with not me. at all so just let's wrap on Channel 4 News, it's where we both work. And I don't think I'm going to be saying anything here that's going to get us fired. I hope not anyway. Um, it's one of the most respected, successful um, and well-known news outlets, I think, in the world, uh, Channel 4 News. I think we're very, very lucky to work there and they're lucky to have us equally. How, how good do you think Channel 4 News are in your time of being there at harnessing and encouraging new talent to come through? Do you think we do a good enough job in really bringing through new producers, new uh, journalists, whatever it may be? I think that we, because being from BBC and kind of looking at different uh, newsrooms, I think we do a good job, but we can do better. Mm. I think it's sometimes, uh, we have a tendency, all of us, of pigeonholing people and thinking you're good at that, you're good at that, and not kind of necessarily seeing the bright sparks that are there and, and pushing people through. Um, I think there's still a tendency in newsrooms for people to um, kind of talk about, like you kind of look at the ones who are boasting about how well they're doing and the ones that are able to advocate and say, yeah, I've done this, I've done that, blah, blah, blah. I'm amazing, I'm this and the other. While actually there's, you know, some some person who's doing amazingly well, but not necessarily shouting about it. And I think ethnic minorities in particular um, sometimes feel like that way. They're just like, I'm gonna put my head down. I'm gonna make sure I do my work. I'm gonna do this, that and the other. And I remember going around to people in newsrooms being like, you need to say that that was you. Mm -hmm. You need to go and say that was you. And you need to speak up in the meetings for your own ideas. No one will sell anything as passionately as you are. You need to go and do that because there's no way that anyone's gonna know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying that like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like that kind of, um, 
like that auntie in the newsroom because I feel so old. Maybe that's what it is. But I feel like I have to go around and say that mm -hmm. because I want people to do better. I want them to do well. And when I see um, people who... Uh, Mediocre is, is being harsh, but I feel like it's people that aren't necessarily that great mm -hmm. getting ahead. Mm -hmm. It really frustrates me because I know that there were some brilliant, absolutely brilliant people who just don't shout out about what they do and they just need to do that a little bit more. Um, but I also, at the same time, feel like management need to recognise that totally. and recognise that um, black and brown people might not necessarily shout about their achievements in the same way. Like I know from coming from a Caribbean background that you were taught when you were younger just to kind of head down, get on with it mm -hmm. and keep quiet, you know, pick me in the corner. Mm -hmm. Don't say anything. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with um, sometimes I feel with um, people from a white British background, they're they're more likely to kind of shout out about all their achievements, what they do, you know, mm -hmm. coming to the coming to the dinner room and be like, yeah, I did this or blah, 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 blah. There's definitely currency um, in being com yeah. overly confident and pushing yeah. yourself. <laughs> Yeah. Even, if, even if you're not good, as you said. And that, that, that really bugs me. Yeah. It really frustrates me when I see that because I don't think that's fair. So I think we kind of need to meet in the middle where people are shouting out about their achievements more, but the managers are also realising what's going on and having that awareness and that cultural awareness that they've had a different upbringing. Mm -hmm. So they might not necessarily be comfortable pushing about coming, and pushing their chest yeah, and saying, yeah, 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 yeah I'm amazing they're not necessarily going to feel comfortable about doing that. And even in, like, I see it in meetings, like, every single day where I'm just like, mm, the amount of men speaking in this is a lot. No offence, but, like, you men like to just speak a lot. And sometimes over women, and that bugs me. Like, and, you know, women are sometimes sitting there just like, and they've got great ideas, and they'll they'll message me after the meeting and say, oh, you know, I had this idea. And I'm like, why didn't you say anything? <laughs> Because if you say something, mm -hmm. then people will realise like, oh, that's what they're passionate about. Totally. That's what they'd like to do. That's what they're good at. And I um, encourage, um, especially women, to to do that a little bit more. And it's something that I've learned because I used to keep quiet and not mm. say anything. And then kind of, um, I call it princess syndrome. You're kind of sitting there waiting to be saved. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that and be all studious and whatever. And then people would take credit for my doesn't ideas. Get you anywhere. It doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> no. And now I'm like, nah, man, I'm brilliant. <laughs> I am brilliant. You need to have me work on this because I am amazing and I'm going to smash it. Um, and one way I was able to do that actually just quickly is all the positive feedback I used to get, I would, I send it to myself. So I send it in emails and I have like positive feedback folder. Brilliant. And then I'm able to look at that folder whenever I'm feeling down or whenever yourself. I'm feeling doubtful, I remind myself. When has your job ever made you cry? Do you know, I cry at everything. I literally cry at Finding Nemo. Like, I just, I, I'm, such, I'm such a child. I cry at everything. I, I think, um, oh, I, I remember a lot of the stories that we do, as we said, are just really harrowing and they're just really difficult to kind of take in. Um, and I remember the, the murder of Joy Morgan. I don't know if you mm -hmm. remember this story. Yeah, yeah. It was a really horrific story. And I, I covered um, the court case at the end. And um, in a lot of these stories, I will come home and it will all hit me at once. And I'll sit there um, and reflect on like what has happened. And sometimes in the cases of like failings of people. And I just sit there and cry. Mm. Um like you feel like a little bit of you is kind of chipped away every time, which sounds really, really sad. And I don't, I don't want to end on a sad note at all. No, no, no. But well, I feel like that, that, 
that empathy makes me a good journalist because mm-hmm. I'm able to kind of take a little bit of it in. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of, I, I don't know if I'm really making sense, but I kind of take a little part of that story with me whenever it's a sad story that really uh, kind of affects me. So, yeah. Well, listen, I asked a question because I, I think it's important that people listening that want to enter this industry understand that it's a it's a job that technically is difficult. It, you need to be talented, but emotionally as well, it can really be difficult. And I think to be, the best journalists are the ones that manage the emotions mm. and can still put out... Um, a factual, progressive bit of journalism that tells a story in the best possible way. So absolutely, no important. one wants to see you. No one wants to see you cry no, on screen. No, no one wants no, to see that. No. So you need to kind of check yourself. And I always like in the newsroom and stuff. I'll be like, right, we've got to do this, that, and the other. Mm. And I want to get the best possible totally. report out and make sure that I do the best of my abilities. I'm checking everything factually. I'm not about getting an offcom complaint. I'm not about <laughs> no one telling me I haven't done a good job or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not about that. But at the end of the day, I'm still human. So at the end, if something has really affected me, I'm gonna come home, go home to those people that that show me love, my fiance, my mum, and I'm gonna just decompress in that space and I'm gonna cry. And then when I come back in to do the next story, I'm gonna be ready sure. and I'm gonna be there. And I'm gonna make sure that I'm not emotional on screen because that's not gonna get, that's not gonna get that story across no, any better if I am crying and emotional. And I did the same with um, the whole summer of um, 2020 with George Floyd. Mm. Watching that video mm-hmm. was heartbreaking because mm. I was like, that could that could be, you know, it could be my brother, that mm-hmm. could be my uncle. Mm-hmm. I know everyone was probably feeling that way. And so for me, it's, it's really important that I'm able to go, you know what, I do cry. Yeah. I am human. There's nothing wrong with crying I can't well. even, um, you know, I can't look at that video without crying. Because when we, as journalists, when we see things, mm-hmm. it comes in in full, right? Yes, There's no yes, blurring. Yes. So we we all saw that in full, a lot of us. And, um, and it's a lot. It's a lot. And you have to take it away and you have to go and speak about it. And you have to talk about it with the people that you love and say, like, look, this is really, really hard. I'm feeling this. I'm feeling that. Um, and speak about it with colleagues as well. I know I've come to you and mm-hmm. I've said, this is difficult, this mm-hmm, is hard, mm-hmm. this story is blah, 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 blah. We see each other in the newsroom, we we support each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really important for us to do as well. Um, I just told that was amazing. Thank you very much for You're being welcome. my first guest. I've got a more rounded um, idea of your career and your journey <laughs> and your highs and your lows. I now, spoke a lot. Really, I'm no, sorry, you, no, I had a lot of feelings. No, 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 but it's all, it's all good. And I hope people listening will um, take something from your journey and how you got in, how persistent and talented that you have been and how talented you are um, and the ups and downs of your job. Um, so thank you very much for coming on my podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.